This is Rumble, and I'm Michael Moore. Welcome uh, to my podcast. Welcome back. Uh, it's uh, been a few days. The Roger Waters uh, podcast from uh, Friday went for, it went for about two and a half hours. It's the longest one we've done. I know that's a it's a long podcast, but it was it was uh, it was such a a great conversation I had with him. And then he sang that song at the end, and we thought let's just put the whole thing up and and give people um, you know. A long weekend plus uh, t- to listen to it, but um, very grateful uh, for Roger Waters for having uh, appeared on this podcast. And um, if you hadn't had a chance to listen to it, uh, uh, please uh, please do so. And don't miss the last uh, forty minutes, half hour of it. It's very powerful. So here we are. I'm back. I'm alive. I know. I know. I get started getting mail from everybody when I don't. Uh, I don't do this for a couple of days. I keep reminding people this started out as a weekly uh, podcast, and uh, that's what it was supposed to be, but it never became that uh, because we, so many things started happening in the news, in the world. Um, we're, we've now done, we've crossed uh, just a day or so ago. It was our uh, four-month uh, anniversary of doing uh, this podcast, 80 episodes uh, within uh, these uh essentially 20 weeks. Um, is it 20 weeks? I don't, I don't even know. I'm so lost. Don't even ask me what day this is, but uh, it's really been a joy. And uh, I thank everybody who's been um, uh, tuning in. And, and we are tonight or tomorrow, somewhere here, we're going to hit our our 10 millionth download, 10 millionth uh, listen, listener to this, uh, to this Rumble podcast. So we look forward to that here in the next few days. God, we were supposed to, we were going to do a contest or something. Why don't we to, to um, actually, why don't, why don't, let's just, let's do it. We'll figure out what the prize is uh, later. Um, it's very hard for us to actually nail the exact number 10 million um, when you, uh, when you log on. So all we ask uh, for you to do, if you are, are listening to it this week, anytime this week, just send me an email. Uh, saying uh, that um, you're hoping that you were number 10 million and that's all we'll, we'll trust you. And, uh, and then we'll do a drawing of the people who uh, did listen to right around the time of the 10 millionth podcast. And, uh, and we'll send you uh, a, a prize or bring you a prize or something. Well, we'll figure out some kind of pandemic prize uh, uh, to give you. So uh, just send an email to me at uh, Mike at michaelmore.com. Uh, just send me a, just say, hi, um, hoping I'm number 10 million or, um, you know, whatever, say whatever you want to say. We will draw at the end of the week when we uh, hit the uh, 10 million mark and you could be one of the lucky winners. It's that easy. Uh, Plus I'd love to hear from you. Uh, You're always welcome to send me an email at Mike at michaelmore.com or uh, send us a a voice message on our anchor uh, platform. Um, we love to listen to those. So without further ado, um, my guest on, on this uh, podcast uh, today is Brianna Joy Gray, uh, somebody uh, who I've known now for a little bit of time, sometime. She, um, best way to describe her, I would say, if uh, she takes it the right way, hopefully, uh, is that she's a recovering lawyer. Um Okay, you're laughing. So uh, that seems to have worked so far. Uh, she's also a former editor and writer at the Great Current Affairs magazine. I encourage everybody to read uh, 
this wonderful publication. Um, and also at The Intercept, uh, she did the same uh, there. Um, and uh, now she is the former national press secretary for the uh, Bernie 2020 campaign, um, a job I would have loved to have had. <laughs> uh, to, to be the national press secretary of such a historic campaign. Brianna, welcome uh, to Rumble here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a longtime listener and very, very excited to finally be on the show. I really, I, I wanted to have you uh, on this episode, uh, Brianna, because there uh, is a lot of a lot of talk about a lot of things right now. Um, uh, not the least of which is uh, the election that we're supposed to have this year. Uh, people haven't forgotten that. Mm -hmm. In the midst of the pandemic and everything else that's going on, we are also supposed to be electing the next president on November 3rd of this year. And it appears, though neither convention has taken place uh, yet, uh, that the Republican uh, nominee uh, will be Donald J. Trump, and the uh, Democratic Party nominee uh, will be Joe Biden. Uh, as it stands here today, um, uh, this is, we're in the middle of May, so Obviously, anything can happen, and this is the year that you really could call that the slogan of the year, anything can happen. Anything you thought was going to happen back in January has not is completely off the books, off the charts, and uh, nothing has happened in this year the way we would have expected it. But I thought it would be good to have you on because um, you have been um, uh, vocal since the campaign is over, has you know ended. Um, about where we should be, what we should be thinking of, and um, how we need to leverage the power that we have as citizens, and as in this case with you and I and others who might be listening as supporters of uh, Senator Sanders, of what we should be doing to make sure that things uh, things go the way that's going to be in the best interests of this country. Why don't you just fill me in? Because um, we haven't spoken in a little while, of just where your head is at, and and what what has transpired um, in your own personal evolution or uh, de de evolution <laughs> since <laughs> since the the campaign ended. Maybe I should just ask you: Are you okay? First of all, because you worked so hard, everybody put in so much effort into this campaign. It did not end the way that we had hoped it would. So just, I'm just, how are you doing? Yeah. You know, I, I've never worked on a campaign before. This is, this is uh, the first time I've had a privilege, the privilege to be in a position like this. And so I can't compare it to the experience of other campaigns ending, but it was, it was, I think, um, additionally sad because we weren't all together. And so there were so many amazing people who worked for the campaign, my colleagues, so many of them are, you know, quote unquote, true believers who really were supporting um, Senator Sanders and working for the senator for all the right reasons. People who had suffered through personal health crises and struggled to pay. People who had parents that suffered with addiction and were caught up in the criminal justice system. You know, people who were DACA recipients like our uh, Latino press secretary, Belen Sisa, and one of my favorite members of our video team, you know, from, you know, top to bottom, 
left to right, there were people who we knew were fighting alongside you, not just because they wanted a job or wanted to work in politics or attracted to the prestige of a major campaign, but because they really saw their personal fates bound up in it. And so um, to go through the disappointment of, you know, the progressive vanguard not making it through, but also not to be physically there with each other um, to say goodbye. You know, we had to pack up the office in shifts so that, you know, more than 10 people weren't there at a time because of the coronavirus, you know, it, it made it so that it kind of lacked a sense of finality, I think. And we meet up for our, our video chats uh, periodically on Tuesdays, actually, me and my, my friend cohort. Um, but it's not quite the same. So I really am looking forward to the time where we can all see each other in person and give each, each other a big hug and put our heads together and talk about next steps. Um, to, to that end, you know, a lot of people have been reaching out to me kind of asking, curious, what do we do next? Because, you know, unfortunately, you know, electoral politics does matter. I, I know that we often like to say, especially on the left, it's grassroots and bottom up and all of that is true. But it's also true to have, you know, an elected an, an infrastructure of elected officials that make the work that we want to do easier to achieve and for so many years now, Bernie Sanders has represented one of the few um, and the most, you know, advanced and significant opportunity to advance progressive politics in this country, genuinely leftist progressive politics in this country. And since 2015, there was always this possibility that, you know, Bernie is going to carry us across the finish line. And now that that's no longer the case, you know, Folks, folks are having to reorient and re- rethink about where they, they put their energies. Um, he provided a real focus for folks that doesn't exist anymore. And I don't pretend to um, have all of the answers. But you said that with coronavirus, it's difficult to remember that there is an election going on. And I understand that perspective and it's one commonly shared. But something I often think about is that I am focused more on the election because of the extent to which the coronavirus um, crisis has revealed that so much of what Bernie Sanders was advocating for and so many of the truths that he pointed out about our system and its inadequacies are now laid bare. And as um, a campaign um, surrogate, Kyungi Yamada-Taylor, um, now um, our Pulitzer winner, Kyungi Yamada-Taylor, um, wrote recently, you know, reality endorsed Bernie Sanders. The, the world as it is endorsed Bernie Sanders. You know, our circumstances compel us to take those ideas seriously. And I think we should continue to push for and take those ideas seriously, even if he isn't the nominee. And that means pushing the Democratic Party and Joe Biden, if he is the nominee, to take those issues seriously, um, because it's more obvious than ever that lives depend on it. You mentioned that um, that during this, uh, this stay-at-home lockdown for the people who are able If they have those kinds of jobs, they've been either laid off or they've been allowed to work at home. But of course, we have so many, so many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of fellow citizens who don't have that um, ability. They are stocking our grocery store shelves as we speak. They are mopping the floors of the hospitals. They are uh, doing all this, I would say, dangerous work uh, so that... uh, we can eat a meal so that we can uh, go see the doctor if we need to um, so that we have transportation to get to wherever we need to go at this point. Mm -hmm. But 
you intimated that they that that on the other end of this there may be something to come out of it because as you said that, that it's been laid bare it's been exposed the system has been exposed the underbelly that bernie and others have spoken about for so many years um is no longer theory it's no longer political rhetoric it's what actually is would you go over some of those things that you've thought about that you've noticed that other people have noticed in terms of the country we thought we lived in wasn't that country, but what it actually is, is uh, is a lot of what uh, Bernie and others have been trying to tell us. And now, and now here it is. And I can't tell you how many people who have told me that uh, they uh, didn't vote for Bernie Sanders, but now see that uh, what he was saying um, is the reality of it is the truth, not just that yeah. he was just speaking a truth, but it has come true. If it, if you didn't understand that it was already true for decades, long before Bernie and long before Donald Trump. Yeah. Well, first and foremost, I, I'd like to point out that millions of Americans knew before this crisis what the state of play was already. Right. And you see that. Um, both in the fact that Bernie Sanders was able to amass the most diverse and most working class coalition in the race. And that points to the fact that people who belong to a historically marginalized group, be they Latino or African-American, be they women, um, and be they working class, be they lower income, those groups all overwhelmingly favored Bernie to other candidates. And I shouldn't also forget, obviously, that younger voters, voters under 50, also preferred Bernie Sanders overwhelmingly. So the people who are in my generation, for instance, who got hit by the double whammy of graduating into uh, the financial crisis and then are now getting hit during what are supposed to be some of our prime earning years by this coronavirus crisis and the subsequent financial crisis, um, we didn't have to have it kind of spoon fed to us that the system as it is, is inadequate. And when you look at polls um, assessing the favorability of uh, capitalism versus socialism, you see that clearly um, with younger people. We understand viscerally uh, the injustices that come with our chosen economic system, and we perceive it as a choice as opposed to this is the way the world is. Suck it up, kids. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, right, as as we've been told so often. So I just I do want to push back against the idea that, you know, for everybody, it's new. The people who got it were the people who lived it. And those were the people who were part of the Bernie coalition. Now, our job and a job that we obviously didn't do um, sufficiently well was to explain to everyone else um, what the stakes were and that a better world was, in fact, possible. Because what I experienced and why I the reason why I first got into politics and stopped being a lawyer and, and started to write and became a journalist it's because I was so deeply disappointed that the rhetoric coming out of the Democratic Party in 2016 was so laser focused on convincing masses of Democratic voters, people who perceive themselves as progressive and want the best things out of life and, and broadly share our morals and values, convincing them that it wasn't a betrayal to not vote for Bernie Sanders because what he was offering just wasn't possible. And to, to tell us that it was all about a pie in the sky, that it was like asking for a pony, like wanting health care was wanting like akin to wanting cookies and milk is a line from um, Hillary Clinton's What Happened. Uh, and I think that even outside of the context of that race, that the effect, the kind of psychological effect 
um, the political, long-term political effect of telling a population that incrementalism is the only option, that the world could only be so good, is shocking. It's horrifying. And it's more politically stiltifying than I would argue a lot of what is coming out of the Republican Party, because Republicans are pretending to stand up for what we want and what we believe in, right? The only people, the only party that is plausibly going to be fighting for basic rights and justice as we perceive them as a conceive of them on the left is the Democratic Party. So to have that, that, that was, I think, the biggest challenge. How do you undo some of that work of um, the third way? How do you undo some of that? I know this is like a controversial word, but the neoliberal ideology that says asking for the basic social supports that exist in every other similarly situated affluent country in the world um, are also possible here. Um, so now we're looking down the barrel of cities like Los Angeles, where 50% of people are unemployed. We have unemployment rates uh, that are record high, that are eclipsing those in the great that we saw in the Great Depression. We now see that all of those um, moderate Democrats, I prefer to call them corporate Democrats, because the moderate, the middle of the country is, in fact, to the left of the Democratic Party. Corporate Democrats like Pete Buttigieg and, yes, Joe Biden, arguing that if you like your health care, you can keep it is a complete and total farce, as millions and millions of Americans have lost their health care along with their employment. Um you know, we're seeing the overwhelming instability, food instability already before the crisis. One in five American children was food insecure. We are the wealthiest nation in the history of the world where 500,000 people sleep on the streets every night. You know, and so when Bernie Sanders was calling for a national housing guarantee, housing as a human right, when he was the only candidate that was advocating for um, national rent control, you know, when he was seeing that we already had an enormous wealth gap in this country where, uh, you know, the top three, uh, the top wealthiest three people in the country had more wealth than the bottom 50% and saying it doesn't have to be that way. You know, in a, in a world where we had a measured and kind of fair media system, the media would have said, yes, that's correct. Factually, scientifically, um, you know, any any study any student of um, sociology would tell you that the political diagnoses that Bernie Sanders is putting out there is right, and we should demand of all of our candidates to meet meet those basic needs of the country. They didn't, and no one has ever held those candidates to account and asked them, "Well, why? What are you going to do, Pete Buttigieg, when people can't afford to pay the seven thousand dollar a year penalty for not signing up for your health care plan?" Joe Biden, what are you going to do about the 10 million people who by design are left uninsured under your health care plan? And now that we have this crisis that's forcing a lot of people who previously were not implicated or, or were not caught up in some of the worst parts of our system who are able because of their relative privilege to be satisfied under the status quo, now that all of us or most of us are implicated in this crisis because we all have to figure out how to avoid getting sick from this virus. Suddenly now all of the, the people, all of our politicians are being asked these questions that should have they should have been held account to account for for the duration of their political careers. And we're seeing people forced to respond. And the frustrating part is when you see articles saying, oh, Joe Biden is trying to come up with new ideas to meet the crisis. When what we need is not new ideas. The ideas are there. What we need is people who have the um, political courage and the economic freedom 
freedom from corporate donors to actually commit themselves to the policies that we all know will work to help average Americans, but of course are not going to pay dividends to the um, the, the big wigs, um, the corporatists who fund uh, almost every other political campaign other than um, Bernie Sanders. What do you what do you think on the other end of this when we come out of this uh, pandemic? I mean, how do you how optimistic are you? How do you see things? What do you what do you think the chances are? Because I just I've noticed just from people writing to me and whatever that people's eyes have been opened in in a profound way, and they don't want to go back to the old normal. Uh, they want to create something, some kind of new normal that um, where we're just living in a better world and treating each other differently. And they don't quite know how to make that happen. But I get, I get, I don't know. Are you pessimistic about this? Are you optimistic? What, uh, you know, what keeps you wanting to get up in the morning, basically? I mean, I, I personally, I don't know. I don't really see pessimism as an option. And that's not to say that I don't wake up and have my moods in my days that are mostly consumed with, you know, watching reality TV on loop. But the reality of the situation, (laughs) I mean, this is, you know, we're all human and we should, you know, do what we got to do to keep our head above water. But the reality is the world is going to still be there once you finished the last season of Married at First Sight. (laughs) (laughs) At some point, you're going to open your eyes and the world is still going to be there. Um, And when you have people that you love who are directly implicated um, by the problems that are still percolating, then it makes you feel a certain commitment and a certain fire in your heart to try to do something about it. Um, And whether or not it's true, I I have to believe that the long moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. Um, And at very least, even if it doesn't, if we are not resisting and pushing it, uh, if not toward justice, then then resisting its its bend in the opposite directions to the best that we can, then I think that we are complicit, you know, in, in anything bad that happens. So, you know, I, I look at the traction that Bernie's ideas have made since 2015. I look at this, election cycle where almost every person on the stage had to at least pretend to support some version of Medicare for all. The Medicare for all who want it is a lie, but I think the fact that it even had to be phrased that way is indicative of how toxic it has become to not acknowledge that um, our healthcare system is broken. Um, I look at the- Totally, totally broken. Totally broken. Right. And people people have seen it right down to the masks and the gloves that none of this is set up to work. None of it's set up to uh, benefit or protect the workers. And certainly nobody in the United States wants to get sick and have to go to a hospital. Yeah. And you, just, and you saw this. It, it was a fascinating, there was a fascinating moment shortly before the campaign ended um, where a lot of politicians, um, particularly those who are more progressive, uh, have been arguing that, you know, coronavirus treatment and testing should be free. Uh, I think there is a, a kind of a shared destiny aspect of coronavirus. Um, you know, even Tom Hanks can get coronavirus, right? So there's this sense that, you know, we have to treat everybody or we can, or, 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 or some of, you know, none of us can be safe. It's not one of those things you can kind of wall yourself off from in a compound, although obviously you can impart as so many of the first responders 
uh, as we know, uh, rather from how many first responders and people in black and Latino communities who are getting sick disproportionately show us. But, you know, they're still at the end of the day, we're, we're all kind of in this together as an economy. And so you had you had politicians saying, OK, the testing should be free. And there was this moment shortly before the campaign ended where I, you know, quote tweeted a tweet from Kamala Harris, Senator Harris, where she said that. And I said, absolutely, that's correct. And also this logic extends to every other disease, <laughs> because how can you understand as an ethical measure that it is wrong for someone to be sick and not get treatment simply because they're poor in the context of coronavirus and not understand that for cancer or diabetes or any of the other diseases that are so prevalent in this country. And that caused people to lose their minds. Um, I ended up trending on Twitter that day. People were very, very upset with me. And I think it's because the cognitive dissonance, coronavirus has made it so that the cognitive dissonance of basically not committing yourself to Medicare for all has raised to the top. It's, it's at its breaking point. Because if you're making an argument that it is unethical, it is immoral for Donald Trump and the Republicans to not want to let everyone get tested and treated for free because this disease is so terrible and it's destroying so many lives, then how do you cut that logic stream off right before you get to a disease like diabetes, where people are paying 10 times as much for their treatment in America as they do in Canada, just a few miles away, right? How do you get to a place where you understand that medical bankruptcy is the number one cause of bankruptcy in this country and that 500,000 people a year go bankrupt from medical bankruptcies and uh, that 50% of families who have a family member diagnosed of cancer go bankrupt within, I believe, two, two years. How can you know all those facts and then not want to extend that logic to those other diseases? So I am, I am buoyed. My, my hopes are buoyed by the fact that um, I think it's harder and harder to ignore the truth of what um, Bernie has been arguing for and that we should, as a country, again, the wealthiest nation in the history of the world, be coming closer to an FDR um, uh, style of social welfare, state social safety net. Now, it is also frustrating to then see articles written up that say Joe Biden, how he can be the next FDR, his big solutions to address a big problem. Well, we know that on, on the face of it, he hasn't actually adopted any of the not so radical positions that it is re are required in this political moment. So I do think that there's a, we have to be um, guarded against some of the lingo being appropriated by those who have no substantive investment in following through on the big ideas. Some of this, what you're saying, you know, has riled some people, especially in the Democratic Party. Um, that uh, and you won't back down on on these things, um, especially we're talking about healthcare here, or whatever. That day you went, you were trending there <laughs> on, uh, on Twitter. I remember people people were writing things like, "You'll never work in Washington again," <laughs> and uh, "You're done, you're done." And it was a it was a real um, man. It was uh, it. it uh, how do you deal with that? You know, when you're when people that are s supposedly allies yeah. are are just looking for ways. Man, especially I saw too just the sort of glee that some Democrats had when Bernie uh, finally, uh, you know, tossed his. Um, what do you toss? You toss your hat in the hat. You're gonna, <laughs> well, that's when you're running. Yeah. When you're when you're when you're ending the run, um, I, I guess you just try to. 
walk away from the ring. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the right metaphor is, but uh, but yeah. what? How, did, how was that for you when you were saying these things about uh, um, you know what we need to keep fighting for and all that? You know, look, the people who say I might never work in this town again, they they might be right. Um, but I think what they miss is how much that tells, I mean, that's the (laughs) thing that I think they miss how much they, that, that tells more about them than it does about me. So what were they really saying when they said that to you? Well, that there, there is a, a line you have to walk. There is a kind of message that you have to, a message line that you have to tow if you want to be given the MSNBC pundit job and allowed to work at prestige, um, publications that, there is a kind of um, ideological intolerance for a certain kind of idea um, on, on I don't want to say the left liberals, all these words get kind of mixed up, but on the broader left among Democrats. And that's the thing. I know that. That's why I got into this. And I think that they might very well be right. I might never work in this town again. But the only reason I ever endeavored to work in this town, the only reason I left the law and became a writer was because I was so frustrated with the town. And and right now, you know, I'm in the process of, of writing a book where I'm I'm trying to get to the bottom of kind of what's going on between this this divide between the left and the center left because I am not someone who kind of revels in the hostility there. I'm not someone who enjoys that balkanization. I believe I know. I know from polls, I know from talking to people on the campaign trail, I know from life that a majority of Americans support all of these so-called progressive ideals. They're common sense. A majority of Americans support Medicare for all. Almost 90% of Democrats support Medicare for all and a majority of independents support it. They support putting workers on corporate boards. Uh, They support um, a higher minimum wage. You know, they support a wealth tax overwhelmingly, Republicans and Democrats and independents alike. So what is it about kind of mainstream liberals that sees a, a critique of Joe Biden and critique of the Democratic Party that says, hey, you aren't sufficiently attendant to the needs of the communities that you say you represent? Hey, we need you to move left. And by left, I mean center because you are to the right of center. Why is it that so many people see commentary to that effect as such an attack on themselves? Why is it that Bernie, the idea that Bernie is not a Democrat has so much more traction than the fact that the Democratic Party has moved so far from its old school mores, right? So mm, I'm, I'm yeah. trying, I want to write something and I want us to keep talking about what that's like in a way that's not so heated and antagonistic as it often is online, because I would like to in, live in a world where when we enter the next election cycle, you know, the, the pod save crew and their listenership, you know, that, that that part of the party that they represent is on our side um, because we don't have to do all of the work of explaining, you know, corporate capture and how um, it's not about a candidate being a good person or a bad person or whether you like Joe or whether you liked Obama, but about ha- the fact that they have a former healthcare lobbyist as a senior advisor and the fact that they've taken all this wine cave money and that that means that means something about what they're going to be willing to commit to when they're in the Oval Office, if they make it to the Oval Office. Um, and that it's going to hamstring them in terms of the kinds of policies that they can support in the context of an election, an election in which if they did back some of those popular policies, it would make them more electable against Trump. And that what we're trying to do is actually advance the ball of, yes, perhaps Joe Biden or whoever the nominee is, by 
asking them to be the candidate that most Americans actually want them to be. Um, so, you know, I think it's an interesting question. And unfortunately, you know, I'm glad for podcasts like these because there aren't that many venues to have those kind of sincere conversations. And certainly with the paucity of left voices that exist in the mainstream media, there aren't a lot of opportunities for people who occupy that space um, to have those conversations and to interrogate their own biases and to ask themselves, what is it about kind of this moderate third way democratic angle that is resulting in so little enthusiasm and resulting in such low favorables for Joe Biden and resulted ultimately in Hillary Clinton losing in 2016. Wow. I'm, uh, you know, I have, um, I've, like I said, I don't know what this is day, day 71 for me, um, Mm. here in lockdown. And I am, you know, just processing everything you just said. And, um, and, you know, I, I really wanted to talk to you today because um, I did this interview earlier with a, a magazine earlier today, and and a lot of it was about we were talked a lot, a lot about Joe Biden, and uh, and I said I said what I've been saying is that all of us who were out on the campaign trail with Bernie took the pledge that you know we were going to support whoever the Democratic nominee was. And he says, "Well, that doesn't sound very enthusiastic." And I said, "Well, I mean, it's it's." I'm voting for him. What, what, you want more, right? I, I, I understand. It'd be good if I brought 10,000 people to the polls with me, but I can't do that. I don't have that kind of power. It's, it's uh, people have got to wake up on election morning and be so excited about getting to the polls and, and voting for the nominee. The Democrats seem to cynically be counting on that people are going to wake up on election morning and be so excited, not in a positive way, but the fact that they're going to go and remove Trump which is a noble effort. Um, don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. but it, it really does speak poorly of us. Doesn't it? To, that, that we, we don't have somebody that is going to um, make millions of people want to leap out of bed that morning and go and vote for him because they see by putting him in the white house, we are going to have such a better country and better world. Um, and you can't say that really with a straight face and it's not, I'm not knocking them. I'm just saying, let's just be honest with this. What's going to happen, um, here. And I, and I guess I wanted you to, you have been one of the the people. And again, you've been, you know, attacked for this, which I'm sorry about that. You'd think that this would be the, the, you look up the word liberal in the dictionary and the definition is having an open mind and being willing to have the conversation. And you bring up some some very legitimate things that we should all be thinking about when it comes to Joe Biden and, um, and, and the hammer comes down. Um, and I want, I want to hear your voice. I want to, no matter what I'm going to do, I, I want to hear all voices and I want to, I don't want to be told that I'm to get in line on something here because, um, one of the great things about Bernie's campaign is that, there's, there was this diversity uh, of, and I don't mean just in terms of identity politics here, but I'm just, mm-hmm. but I do mean that too, because I came into the office there in DC early on. Mm-hmm. I wanted to kind of meet and see who's running the show here. And they brought in all the various department heads in this conference room and sat around this big oval table. I don't know. It might've been, could have been two dozen people in the room for all I know. And, and, uh, and I think I, I spotted maybe one guy, who sort of looked like me, (laughs) 
there was one guy, there was one white guy uh, <laughs> named Jeff uh, <laughs> down at the other, <laughs> other end of the table. And I'm telling you folks who are listening to this right now, this was an incredible room to sit in that these were the people that were running a presidential campaign. And there were of course, all colors at the table, all ethnicities, all sorts of religious or cultural backgrounds, uh, socioeconomic. Uh, you mentioned that at the beginning of this, that the, one of the key women was a, is a DACA is a, is a, is a dreamer, uh, mm-hmm. not, not here quote legally. Mm-hmm. Um, and on and on it was, it was, um, it was inspiring. And, uh, it, 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 and white people don't spend a lot of days in environments like that where, mm-hmm. where there we're the minority. And, um, and this wasn't one of these campaigns where like Bernie had just hired the token person here and the token there to make it look like he had the rainbow coalition part two, uh, going on in the, in the, these were the people that were actually running everything. And, and it looked like America, if not the America of exactly of 2020, it's definitely the America of 2030 folks. And, um, and it just, it felt so good. It felt, I felt so good when I left there. And, and again, now I'm not talking about all the representation that existed in the room. I'm talking about the brains and the desire and the fight in the people yeah. in that room. Oh man. I thought, geez, yes, this is who you want to go into battle with. Um, so that's a long way around to, to uh, getting to what I was asking you about your, you know, why you have been, you know, pilloried in some ways mm. for just, for just suggesting a pause so that your voice could be heard. That and that if there is if there's anything we need to talk about, let's talk about it now, because I think we should. Because to not do that means uh, the, the the possibility that we're going to lose uh, come November third, and that is intolerable for me. And and I and I'm worried that the people on our side will be the ones that make that loss happen. There, I said it. Yeah. So. I do think, I, and I again, I've been giving this a lot of thought um, as I struggle through my perspectives. <laughs> and uh, I think that part of it is the fact that so much of what Democrats have left uh, in terms of defining themselves and understanding who they are as a party that after the you know, much ballyhooed McGovern laws struggled to find its foothold through the eighties and finally figured it out. It seemed with third, the third way and Bill Clinton. Um, and in doing so abandoned its historic ties and commitments to union organizing and labor. Uh, and what you get after that, after you em- kind of embrace third way neoliberalism, a- after you decide, okay, look, the only way to keep- compete with Republicans is to take money from the same people they were competing with so that we can compete with these enormously expensive ad buys on television. And, you know, if this is the game we have to play. What also happens is you lose your ability to make the same kinds of commitments that you can make when you didn't take the money from those institutions, right? When you didn't take all that corporate money, when you used to take the labor money instead, right? Now your priorities shift. So if I can't fight as hard for the kind of the economic populist agenda that used to be on the plate, what's left? 
the Democratic Party, what's left is the party. We're the party that, you know, likes black people and Latinos and gay people and immigrants. And the Republican Party hates those folks. And that identity has become the the last significant distinguishing factor when you have both parties who have a constituted Senate that's full of multimillionaires who seem to only get enormously more rich after they have taken office, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So that is why I think in part, I have become a bit of a lightning rod for some people because over the past few decades, the number one criticism that Democrats have been able to make of anybody who challenges their agenda from any angle is you're racist, you're white, you're privileged, we don't need your voice. And that's what we saw in 2016 with the emergence of the Bernie bro narrative. In 2016, Bernie had less name recognition. I think that directly correlated to him having less support from black and brown communities. Um, he still had those communities under 30, but you know, he, the, the narrative was that predominantly white people supported Bernie Sanders because you couldn't, you know, want to like him unless you had basically no care in the world or you were a teenager living in your mom's basement, a white male teenager living in your mom's basement. Now, I'm a black woman, so it's a little less clean for them to simply write off the criticism that I might have um, by saying that I am white, male and disinterested um, in a broader struggle. And I saw that when I first started writing and I started writing about how identity was being weaponized to defeat the left. Um, and I, my pieces, which in some ways weren't so different than other pieces that had been written, had a lot more reach and got a lot more traction because they weren't so, couldn't be so easily dismissed. And then when I became a part of this campaign and uh, ironically became kind of the figurehead and stand in for the Bernie bros, um, people didn't like my online Twitter commentary. Um, there was a Bloomberg press release that wrote up a bunch of my tweets as emblematic of the problem with the Bernie bros and the Bernie campaign. So now we live in a topsy-turvy world where Bloomberg um, uh authoritarian who openly embraced racist policing, uh, <laughs> um, who was a Republican up until two seconds ago, um, is saying that a black woman is emblematic of a race problem because she's calling or an online toxicity problem because she's calling him out truthfully for being an authoritarian racist. Right. And right. this is this is the spot that we're in. And I think that there's a lot of cognitive dissonance that came up in 2020 around the fact that, yes, Bernie did have the least white campaign in the race. And people to this day, if I tweet that, there was a bunch of folks that come out of the woodwork and say, what are you talking about? He lost South Carolina. I mean, I hate to break it to you, but there is more than one racial group in America. Um, and Bernie Sanders was number one with Latinos and number two with African-Americans. And when you put it all together, he was number one with non-white voters, you know, and Joe Biden is realizing that this is going to be an issue for him now because the states where black Americans are disproportionately concentrated tend to be red southern states that aren't going to have as much electoral value as much as there is obviously human value to those votes and in in mm. taking care of the people in those states. They're That's not going right. to have as much electoral value. 
Let's um, back it up. A, back it up. Let's back yeah. it up just a second, mm-hmm. though, because I'm sure. I, I think, <clears throat> fortunately, nobody's driving in their car these days, so mm-hmm. nobody just swerved off the road with what you just said. But <laughs> I want, I want, I want to go back. I want to go back to it because um, it's it's a point that has been lost as yeah. history has been uh, quickly rewritten. Um, that Bernie Sanders, with people of color, people who are not white. Um, maintained the majority of their votes, I believe, I think in just in, I can't speak for all of Super Tuesday, but um, generally that was the case in all of these uh, primaries. Mm -hmm. And um, the Latino vote was never discussed. And um, he was polling number one with Latinos five months before the primaries began. He was, he was, uh, and, and then once the election started, they, you know, but, but South Carolina comes along mm-hmm. and, uh, um, and the media, they love their narrative. Right. You know, they love, they love their racial narratives the best. Uh, they like to talk about how, how much black people love the Clintons. Right. And they and, love their, selectively love their racial narratives. Right. Yes. Oh, again, yes. Wait, and the ones race- that make them feel better. Right. You know, and, help and them get only- to sleep at night. Only, only about, and it's, it's a struggle with this because I obviously don't want to minimize the political agency of the black vote. I'm happy that people are paying attention and care. If it was, if it, if they authentically care, I'm very enthusiastic about that. I'm a black voter. I care, but at the same time, that doesn't have to come at the expense of ignoring Latino voters, ignoring the Latino vote, or only kind of fetishistically caring about the black vote insofar as it supports a narrative, but ignoring what's going on with black voters you know, 364 days out of the year and also just relying on black voters as a firewall because they know that we have no alternative party to vote for as opposed to because we're actually having our needs met by Democrats. Right. So then, so uh, um, representative James Clyburn Mm -hmm. of uh, South Carolina, you know, he's given the credit for pushing Biden over because he came out and endorsed him. And the way the narrative goes is that the, the, Black voters of South Carolina lined up behind uh, Congressman Clyburn and and uh, did what he said had said they should do. Um, and it uh, there's something about this particular part of the narrative that gets a little icky um, because you essentially have white media um, and the white control of the DNC um, uh, using this black uh, congressman as a means to get what they want. And so, you know, here's, <laughs> here's Joe Biden who has uh, sadly a record uh, when it comes to um, the decisions that he's made and how they've affected people of color uh, in this country over the years. And uh, we're not supposed to talk about that. We're not supposed to bring that up. Right. And, and we're supposed to do what Jim Clyburn says. Now, when I, hear the name Jim Clyburn. Um, the first thought that pops into my head, and maybe this is just because I made a movie about our healthcare system, but mm. the number one recipient of money from big pharma, Democrat or Republican in our Congress is a man by the name of representative James Clyburn. Yeah. Um, he is, he is their man in Congress. Um, he is, he is in a sense, he is a representative of the people who elected him in South Carolina, but he's also really a lobbyist and doing the, the will 
<clears throat> of Big Pharma in Congress. And in doing the will of Big Pharma has probably, I can't, I cannot quantify the havoc that he's caused in the lives of so many people, especially people with lower incomes uh, in terms of what, I mean, how do you get behind helping the pharmaceutical companies take the price of insulin from, you know, a, 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 the actual cost of making it and, and what, it, what they used to charge for it. A few dollars a month is the cost and it might've cost people uh, 20 bucks a month or whatever to now that it's two or $300 um, a month. Mm. And how do you, I mean, how do you, it just, I don't know. I, I, I have watched this over the years in politics and, and I've watched how um, when, when you have a group that has essentially been oppressed, be it women, uh, people of color, um, the working class, the poor, um, when the system can get somebody of that group to be the enforcer, to participate in the oppression. I mean, again, anybody listening to this has, has seen uh, women politicians, women elected representatives. Uh, uh, Susan Collins, I didn't say your name. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, do things that hurt women. And yeah. you're a woman doing this, and I and I have seen I have seen black politicians do this. I have I have seen people who grew up in the working class forget where they came from. Right. Um, I have seen this over and over and over again, and it's enough to just make you want to go, "What the fuck?" You know. Yeah. Um, but you don't you don't give up. But but um, you know I don't know. I think I'm asking for your advice because yeah I. Uh, Jim Clyburn, Jim Clyburn. So I said the a couple of days after the South Carolina primary, I think it was on an MSNBC show, and I, and I said, look, these first primaries, I don't want to do this again. Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, are not representative of what this country looks like or is like. Now, no offense to any of them, wonderful states, <laughs> um, good people, but this is ridiculous that. These three states are picking the people every time when they are not representative themselves of the people. And this has to stop. Well, he blew up, you know, that I would dare to say that South Carolina wasn't representative and and it has such a, a large black uh, population or whatever. And well, and look know. at how the press handled Nevada. So the first two, New Hampshire, yeah. Iowa, the argument is, OK, there's only white people, so it doesn't matter that Bernie won them. Now, we also won the Latino vote overwhelmingly in Iowa, which is about 10% um, non-white. And we we blew them out of the water, both Latino vote and there's a significant East African immigrant population there right. who's now on the front line of the coronavirus because they predominantly work in the meatpacking industry there. And the campaign invested a lot of money into getting those communities on board. Um, we won the Muslim vote there, et cetera, et cetera. But the media didn't care about that. Okay, fine. It's a 10%, I think, is a relevant percentage of people. America's only 10% black, but okay, we don't care about the 10% of non-white people in Iowa. Let's move on to Nevada, which is an overwhelmingly disproportionate Latino state where we won 70% of the Latino vote, 70%. Not a peep out of the media on peep. how well Bernie did no. with those voters. And in fact, we had people like Soledad O'Brien tweeting, oh, who cares about Nevada? Nevada? Let's see what happens when we get to a diverse state. 
right? Let's see what happens when we get wow. to a diverse state. Wow. So this is echoes what? of another <laughs> fun moment that happened in 2016 when Hawaii, when Bernie won Hawaii. And the the, the narrative was uh, Bernie only wins white states. Well, I believe Hawaii is the least white state in the country. Now it's not black either. Right. But it is also not white. And so there is this way that, you know, minorities are selectively kind of lifted up and vaunted by the party to suit certain narratives. So, yeah, it's 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 deeply frustrating. And to your point about Clyburn, I think that part of the issue here is that nobody is it's not about whether or not you think Clyburn is a good person or a bad person. I think we can respect his civil rights legacy. I think that you can respect a lot, you know, a lot of what he's done for his constituents and his community over the years and the respect that he has earned. At the same time, as you acknowledge, there are systemic structural factors which put a lot of pressure on representatives, particularly those from lower income districts, which are disproportionately black and brown, to um, be able to meet the fundraising requirements of the Democratic Party. So if you're not talking about and if you're not thinking about what pressures are these politicians under, regardless of what's in their hearts, what pressures are they under to raise a certain amount of money from a party that requires it of them and then raise a certain amount of money to stay elected, right? Then you're not, then you're, you're mired in this world of, oh, you're just insulting, you know, Clyburn and you just, you're a, you're a racist and you think he's a bad person and that's not fair. And why are you ganging up on him? Instead of thinking, what would happen if we lived in a world where he was free from those pressures uh, and where we all just had a um, we assessed politicians and their w- willingness and ability to actually um, meet the needs of their constituents based on whether or not they were able to raise money from their constituents, raise money from non-corrupted sources. Right. And I think that having a conversation about the way money and power works as opposed to who is a good and bad person and do we like Joe Biden with the sunglasses and oh isn't Obama nice and a family man you know we need to be able to disaggregate how we feel about the individual to how we feel about the systems that are directing the individual's behavior and i think until we do that we're not going to be able to have a substantive critique of politicians yes some of whom are black and some of whom are female and some of whom are latino and some of whom are gay and not all of whom are always acting in the best interest of the communities who they, you know, typically represent. So, all right. So I actually just started feeling sorry for him a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't, I mean, he's a, you know, I don't know enough about what, you know, his life is like in particular. I just, I, 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 I know that there are a lot of sensitivities though about these people. And as someone who was not part of the club, someone who, you know, might never work in this town again, who only had, you know, one toe in the door in the first instance, I'm not someone who has personal relationships with these folks. Right. So I know that when I tweet in a way that implicates Kamala Harris's commitment to Medicare for all that people like Julianna Maxwell and Bakari Sellers, you know, they have personal relationships. And I understand that that is a factor. And I can kind of breezily go around saying things without kind of having a human attachment to it, which you can see as a positive or a negative, you know? Um, And I want to be sensitive to the fact that, yeah, these are human beings. And, you know, some of these, some of the people that we're trying to communicate with and sway, you know, have, might have some knee jerk defensive reactions because they like representative, they like Jim Clyburn, you know? 
And I get right. that. And, and I, and so I want to be able to, I'm, I'm trying to be conscious of how to have the conversation that implicates as little as possible kind of intention or kind of personal morality. Mm-hmm. Um, because mm-hmm. if the idea is that we're all Democrats and we all believe the same thing, I think that some of the fission with what's going on on the left is that leftists say, oh my God, you don't care if people are dying in the streets because you don't back Medicare for all. And liberals say, well, how can you say that? You're being so histrionic. Of course I care if people die in the streets. We just can't afford Medicare for all. Parroting back what someone like Hillary Clinton told them about whether or not we could or could not afford, or Nancy Pelosi told them, right? Or any number of these establishment Democrats, to, you know, I mean, to signal anybody out in particular, that's the party line, basically. Um, and so instead of saying, you know, you're dumb and you don't care if babies die or Nancy Pelosi's dumb or Hillary Clinton, you know, to say, okay, let's have a conversation about why it might be that people taking money from the healthcare industry are parroting talking points that don't gel with the reality of what every other situated, similarly situated country in the world has been doing. Mm. And can we have a conversation from a starting point that doesn't implicate your values and beliefs so directly because you believe that you share values with me? So it's, it's the same thing as like liberals who harangue Republicans saying, oh, you just don't care about life and da, da, da. I, you know, they believe they do. And I, I disagree deeply with their prescriptions for the world and how they go about doing things. But your average, you know, Republican mom somewhere um, in Connecticut or Texas or Nevada isn't saying, oh, I just want people to die from a lack of health care. They, too, are parroting those same Republican talking points that are now being fed to both parties in equal measure about how we just can't afford it and the economy will collapse. And, yeah, maybe a sprinkled dose in of also illegal shouldn't have it or what have you. Right. But at the end of the day, I think that a lot of those kind of there's a lot of um, moral high ground that the left has that it is not. I don't want to say weaponizing, but it's not exploiting to its advantage. Why not? Um, why, why, why isn't the left doing that? And, and by the left, I mean the left broadly, liberals. I think the left yeah, is yeah. doing a better job than liberals. Um, yeah. But I think that it's because there is this a, a team sport mentality. It's, you know, I'm not really interested in the art of persuasion. Um, we just need to turn out more of our people, not flip voters, not get Obama to Trump voters back to our side, not motivate non-voters who don't see their fates as really touched one way or the other, no matter who's in office, because they see the system as fundamentally corrupt, which isn't wrong, you know, Mm -hmm. in which I think that you did a really great job talking about in Fahrenheit uh, 11.9 and that scene of the the non-voters, I think they were in Wisconsin, Mm -hmm. Um, maybe they were in Michigan, actually. I don't think they were in Wisconsin. I don't know. But they were they were talking about, you know, they were politically active, engaged people, not some, you know, lazy folks who just didn't care enough to vote. You know, they're they're people who say the system isn't working for me. Um, neither party is gonna meaningfully materially change my life. And, you know, we we like to use moral arguments when it comes to kids on the borders without acknowledging the extent to which those arguments feel hypocritical for those who understood that a lot of those cages were built by the previous administration. You know, we don't acknowledge that for so many, the same hypocrisy that we see among Republicans and the same bad faith that we see among Republicans can be perceived in our own party. And we see that, you know, with the way that there has been coverage and discussion around the Tara Reid allegations. I don't know what happened, um, 
you know, 30 years ago. I wasn't there. And the only people who were there were her and Joe Biden. But I do know that how the claims were taken up and treated by the media was radically different than how Christine Blasey Ford's claims were treated when the bad guy was a Republican. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I think that there are good moral arguments for us to make, but too often making those arguments is too dangerous for the party because it would require them to sacrifice their donor base. Um, and that's why I think that politics has strayed so far away from the art of persuasion to the art of redistricting. Um, and how do we suppress the vote or how do we return out the vote or how do we hope that the changing demographics of America just magically keeps the democratic party afloat, ignoring the large and growing number of Latinos who are happy to vote for Republicans who don't have that same kind of historical attachment that black Americans do because of our legacy of slavery and Jim Crow and coming through the civil rights era, you know, what's what, what, let me ahead, say this. no, it's okay. Um, what's, what's Biden got to do to get your vote? <laughs> I think that if Joe Biden wants, so first and foremost, I want to be clear that more Bernie supporters in 2016 voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016 than Hillary Clinton supporters ultimately supported Barack Obama in 2008. So I don't think it's true that this narrative that Bernie supporters are kind of uniquely um, rebellious and unwilling to toe the party line and do what it takes to get Trump out of office is is factually just wrong. It's wrong. It's not true. Now, 2020 is different from 2016 because in 2016, Bernie supporters towed the line. And for the last four years, we've been harangued and told that we, you know, it's Bernie supporters that caused Donald Trump to get elected, that somehow Bernie supporters are quote unquote, not Democrats, uniquely disloyal. And there, there's been a lot of gaslighting. And this time around, I think there are a lot more people who have that kind of mentality that says, what do we get by continually falling in line? Every time we fall in line and the Democratic Party inches more to the right to capture some mythical Connecticut Republican mom who is going to vote Republican today, just like she re- voted Republican four years ago and every year of the rest of uh, voting year of the rest of her life. Right. So at what point, what do we have to do to get the party to be attendant to our interests and yes, the interests of a majority of Americans? And I think that there are some people who not illogically want some concession, some meaningful concession from Joe Biden, some meaningful acknowledgement that the policies that he's been advocating Mm -hmm. for up to this point are inadequate. And to me, the signature policy that would do that um, would be Medicare for all and an acknowledgement that anything short of single payer health care does not meet meet the needs of the country in the middle of a global pandemic. Right. If he came out tomorrow and said that, that, you know, he didn't understand it until this pandemic happened. And then it's so clear that we need to to act like the rest of the civilized world and guarantee everybody without having to worry about ever really spending a dime out of their pocket that when yeah. they get sick, they're going to get the help they need. Would that do it for you? Would that, would that, uh, it, and, yeah. you know, and, and I know what people, I know I can hear people <laughs> screaming in my ear right now who are listening to this. It doesn't matter. We have to get rid of Trump. It doesn't matter, Mike. You know, what do you, what, what do, you do with that? Because uh, I understand that feeling. You know, this is, yeah. people feel like there is a boot on their neck and the boot says Trump. Yeah. And that's got to stop. Well, for one, if Biden did come out and say that and make that commitment, 
I know that there were a lot of people who would be skeptical that he would follow through on it. But even acknowledging that if you like your health care, you can keep it as a lie. Acknowledging that we need a single payer system is a meaningful rhetorical move shift that I think results in a, in, a, in a genie that you can't put back in the bottle. And the next election cycle, it will be very difficult for anyone to make those arguments and imagine the kind of debates we could have had this election cycle if we didn't have to keep ratcheting back to Pete Buttigieg's brand of uh, Medicare definition. And we could talk fulsomely about what actually Medicare for all means and how it will be implemented and how it would work. And yes, how we can pay for it. Um, so yes, if he came out and, and said that, I would say, I would say that yes, people should vote for Joe Biden because that is a, is a meaningful shift. Um, to the people who say it doesn't matter, we need Trump out of office no matter what. My response is the reason we should be pushing Joe Biden to be closer to the center. And by the center, again, that's the left. Um, it's because it makes him more electable. You are not doing the Democratic nominee any favors by allowing them to adopt an electoral strategy that we already saw failed in 2016. And when I critique Joe Biden, it is not because I want him to lose. It's because that he, he has six months to adopt a political philosophy, more than that, to adopt a political philosophy that makes it more likely that people will be enthusiastic for, about his campaign, that they will volunteer for his campaign, that they will donate to his campaign. He is about to go up against a juggernaut of raw enthusiasm, the likes of which he has never seen before. Joe Biden has been on the ground in Latino communities in Nevada for over a year, just like, by the way, the Bernie Sanders campaign had done. Bernie, uh, Joe, uh, Donald Trump has a media presence and an online reach and an ad spend on organic um, uh, clips being put together from people who feel passionate about him, the likes of which nobody can compete with, but oh yeah, <laughs> Bernie Sanders. And so if you want Biden to be able to capture a fraction of the 1 million volunteers that Bernie Sanders had working for him within a month of our campaign starting, he is going to have to show them that he is going to make a material change in his life and not just maintain the status quo, not just do as he promised his donors in a closed door meeting earlier last year, that nothing will fundamentally change. That is a fundamentally losing argument. If you want Trump out of office, you should be asking Joe Biden to be the best candidate he can be. And that means embracing some of these enormously popular progressive policies. Well, I believe that. That's for sure. Um, it's um, uh, We're getting near the end of the podcast here. And I just, uh, first of all, uh, you ran and hosted Bernie's podcast uh, for the mm -hmm. campaign. So I was a guest. On, it was on my your... favorite episode. And I'm not just saying oh, that, but wow. you and Megan Day oh, were amazing guests. Oh, yeah. Well, Megan Day, I mean, geez. Um, uh, there's so many good people right now, good thinkers, young people. Um, yeah. It's that, uh, you know, you amongst them. Um, I encourage people to read and, and to listen uh, to all of you. But but uh, so so I appreciate you coming on is my guess. How are you holding up during the during things here with the with the pandemic or um, have you been able to avoid getting sick? Have you, uh, uh, you know, what's your secret? Yeah, I mean, I took this. Uh, well, I had the privilege, I should say, of taking it very seriously from the beginning. You know, the campaign um, went on work from home 
pretty early uh, and I didn't leave my apartment, I think, for the first month or so and have only left really a handful of times since then. DC has been good so far. For the most part, I can still get grocery delivery. I've only been to a grocery store once. um, And so I've been pretty lucky in that respect. Uh, I, you know, I've had some family members get it, but you know, my, my, one of my brothers recovered pretty nicely, got it pretty early and didn't have any of the bad symptoms. So for the most part, I remain unscathed, but I think like a lot of families, you know, I have grandparents who are dealing with how to manage their home health care worker situation where they need home care, but they're concerned about, you know, the virus being brought into the house. And obviously, home health care workers are being exposed to a lot and they have their own families. And it's just, you know, it's it's a mess. Um, you know, family members want to stay home and take care of my, my aunt wants, is, is living with my grandmother and taking care of her. But she has a job that wants to, her to come back to work. And she works and human services, opioid addiction and treatment. And, you know, it's, it's a whole, it's a whole um, problem that millions of American families are dealing with on top of obviously the financial stress of not having paychecks coming in. So I'm relatively lucky. I'm just kind of hunkered down in my studio apartment, a little stir crazy, but no worse for the wear. Um, And the real, the real challenge, the real stressor, the real thing that weighs on my mind is just, what do we do now to meet this crisis now that we no longer have a champion um, uh, running for office that had kind of the prescription for what ails the country right now? Mm. And how can well, we so responsibly? We I, I think that the only responsible option, the only responsible thing to do, both if you want Joe Biden, if you want the Democratic nominee to win, um, and if you want the country to have the prescriptions that it needs to meet the moment is to push Joe Biden in this way and to not see that as an anti-Democrat or anti-patriotic act or a pro-Trump act, as I'm so often told it is online, but to see that really as an act of self-preservation. I really need Democrats to think clearly and be clear-eyed about how their candidate is perceived outside of the lens of their own partisanship. How is the candidate perceived by independents? Who are independents actually, not just who how are you imagining them being in their mind's eye? There's a lot of rhetoric about how they don't like Medicare for all and how it's a losing um, avenue to go down when there, when you see now, you know, the, Ryan Graham of The Intercept wrote this article today about how there's this coalition forming in the House between the progressives and swing state Democrats, you know, who understand that a progressive agenda of giving $2,000 a month to every American, to supporting um, the act uh, supported by Bernie Sanders and other member, uh, progressive members of Congress is actually a winning proposition, right? And so for years, Swing districts have been used as the excuse to say, oh, no, the Democratic Party can't move too far left because they'll lose and we'll lose our majority. No, it's the people in the swing district saying, no, we have to respond more to this moment or else we're going to get outflanked by Republicans. You know, you have to be clear eyed about the fact that billions of Americans are getting this check with Donald Trump's big distinctive signature at the bottom talking about who he's the one that's delivered them this stimulus. We have to be clear out about the fact that, frankly, I am in a much better financial situation right now than I would otherwise be, you know, not having a a gig right now um, because my my student loan debt uh, checks are postponed, you know, and who's going to get credit for that at the end of the day? Who's going to get credit for millions of Americans who are only 
getting by because they no longer owe five hundred, a thousand, two thousand dollars a month to the government that they otherwise would. And if what kind of, all what kind of, of that hawk is, are you in? What kind of hawk are you in? To, with what your kind of hawk? Loans? Yeah. Oh, I what, mean, how, I, how I, deep? I mean, I took out the full amount for law school, one hundred eighty thousand dollars, and I, you know, I still have. Uh, when I when I started the campaign, I had just around a hundred thousand dollars left, so I think I'm still around eighty thousand dollars. I mean, the interest rate is eight percent, you know, so it it accumulates quickly. You know, you pay yeah. you're paying mostly. You very rarely are you paying principal, and frankly, this this right. moment of the of the loans being put on hiatus is an opportunity to pay down the principal for the first time, and so I'm like very eager to get a you know a book advance so i can actually try to get myself out from underwater but like i think that democrats we we hate trump we we nancy pelosi is out here calling him morbidly obese and we see that as some great own but at the end of the day there are people who are feeling in their pocketbooks advantages that donald trump is taking credit for and so what's Mm. democratic response to that gonna be what what is joe biden's stance on a two thousand dollar monthly recurring payment no one has even asked him right no one has even asked him right so we should be pushing him to be the candidate that we can all be excited about and see that as a pro-democratic party anti-trump instinct as opposed to to something that's traitorous as is somehow uh, often characterized right right well i hope i hope he's listening (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because uh, there is a path for him um, that where he could go down as uh, doing something historic. Uh, this is an opportunity, and uh, you know, as if his if his own ego or his own you know status quo protecting way that you know the old guard never likes to change. Uh, they don't. They don't like to. Um, they they see life in a certain way. Liberals too. I'm talking about liberals who just, you know, it's this way they think about it and they don't want to change. They don't want to think that there could be another way. I wish the Democrats were a lot more introspective and thoughtful about uh, wanting to reflect on, Hey, you know, we we lose a lot of the time here. I'm tired of losing. What can we do to, to win, to actually, to actually progress, move forward. Um, and instead of being in this, you know, position that we're in. So, <sighs> yeah, I'm 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 with you. And climate change is a significant driver for youth turnout and youth enthusiasm, as we saw with with Bernie Sanders. And you know, Joe Biden uh, has made noises about improving his climate policy, but you know, we someone who got an F minus rating from the Sunrise Movement. You know, so if if you want to win, if you want to save. The world. If you want to make it harder for leftists to argue that there's not that much room between Donald Trump, not that most people are doing this, but you know, to the extent that there's a argument out there that says there's not a lot of room between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, the way that Joe Biden can fix that is by putting more room there, by improving his climate policy, by improving his healthcare policy, by improving his um, student loan policy, by saying, "Hey, we're spending all this money." Right now, and the stimulus, the stimulus, and giving money to um, corporations and bailing them out. How about we spend a measly eighty-two billion dollars and cancel our medical debt? How about some big ideas that are a little bit outside of the box that don't yeah. cost that much money, and then take advantage of the fact that there's make, obviously make, an appetite yeah. for relief right now? Right, it make people's lives so much better. Yeah. Um, hey, Brianna, thank you so much for being my guest uh, today on uh, Rumble.
It's um, a pleasure, I really, truly. Yeah, Thank we you. Can, I could go another hour easily with everything, <laughs> with everything that's going on, but please come back on uh, the podcast here in the, in the future and uh, and um, uh, and let us know as you progress in your own thinking about what to do about the November election, which part of me also feels like the, that Trump will find some way to make sure the November election doesn't happen. So there's that. That's another yeah. whole issue. That's another that, episode. That is a whole other episode that I will look forward to listening to. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but thank you, uh, uh, Brianna Joy Gray, for uh, being the, the national press secretary for Senator Sanders uh, and uh, uh, in his run for the presidency. Uh, I hope this is uh, not the last we uh, hear your voice. I think it's a it's a much needed voice, and uh, it's helped all of us. and And keep us informed about uh, as you think through what to do about this election year. Um, I'd be very curious uh, to know your thoughts and to have you share them with us. So come back on again sometime. That that would be great here on, on Rumble. It would be my pleasure. And thank you for having this podcast where you you have such you know intimate and thoughtful conversations and give space to so many ideas and, and thinkers that often don't have um, sufficient forums to really um, dialogue with each other. I really, I really love the show and I love what you're doing here. Oh, that means a lot. Thank you. And, and to everybody else who's listening out there, remember we're coming upon the 10 millionth download this week. It's happening. Uh, and uh, if you'd like to get in on our little contest of, uh, of being the, the official 10 millionth uh, downloader of this podcast. All you got to do is send me an email to Mike at michaelmore.com and uh, just say uh, you're number 10 million uh, and uh, whatever else you want to tell me about the podcast would be great too. Uh, send that to Mike at michaelmore.com. Mike, M-I-K-E at michaelmore.com. Uh, this can be anybody who's living in the U.S., Canada, across the world. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, we'll we'll draw our winner at uh, the end of the week and and announce uh, number ten million. We we actually did this with our our five millionth uh, uh, downloader uh, uh, back a couple months ago, and uh, it turned out that she um, she was in the Army Corps of Engineers and she has spent the last three months building these hospitals uh, across the the country. So she has not been able to uh, to come on the podcast, but we're going to have her on. Uh, here now because the things are winding down and she uh, can't wait to, to join us. So we will announce uh, her name and, and information shortly and we'll have her on the podcast and number 10 million. We'll have you on too. So uh, Mike at michaelmore.com. Thanks everybody uh, for listening. This has been rumble with Michael Moore. Mm-hmm.